All right, so generally I like to start my messages with uh, something positive. Uh, this week, though, I want to start with a difficult question. Have you ever felt hopeless? It's a nice way to start. <laughs> Have you ever felt hopeless? Like, maybe you were in a difficult position and it seemed like there was no way out. Uh, like the person who gets in so much debt, right? They're paying what they can, but every month it's just like what they owe is only increasing. Or the person who's in an abusive relationship um, and they're getting hurt over and over again and they see no way out. Or the addict could be alcohol, drugs, sex, food, shopping, whatever. Maybe you tried hundreds of times to stop, to get free, and you just can't, and you feel hopeless. Maybe it's an anger issue. Maybe you are judgmental. Uh, maybe you are unforgiving. Maybe you struggle with anxiety or depression. Maybe you're struggling to show love to a friend or a family member um, who you feel is making all kinds of mistakes. And you feel hopeless. Hopeless that they will never change. Um, hopeless that you'll never change. Whatever your situation, uh, maybe you are on the verge of giving up hope. Maybe you already have. Sometimes this is complicated by guilt as well. Like the situation is hopeless and it's all my fault. Certainly addicts struggle with this. Uh, I definitely am a carb and sugar addict. Like that's not a joke. Uh, I, I know that I am. Um, since I was a kid, I would binge and then I would feel guilty and then binge, and then feel guilty, and then binge, and then feel guilty. Uh, I used to weigh over 300 pounds, and I had all kinds of chronic pain and health issues because of it. So not only uh, can we feel hopeless, but we feel like it's all our fault. So our scripture this morning from Isaiah uh, when it was written, the Israelites, God's people, felt pretty hopeless. Uh, they had been unfaithful to God. They had chased after other gods made of wood and stone and worshipped them. And as a result, they abandoned God's laws, they oppressed the poor and the needy, and they turned to sexual immorality. Um, they even offered their children as sacrifices to idols, infanticide. Even when they were offering worship to the Lord, they were often uh, just going through the motions. So over hundreds of years, God tried to call them back to him. Um, he sent prophet after prophet to try to warn them about what would happen if they didn't repent and return to him. 
A few responded, but most just ignored him. Um, eventually, God allowed foreign armies to invade the country and defeat the Israelites. Jerusalem was conquered and destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. They were taken away as prisoners into exile in a foreign country, and their land was given over to others. The prophets made it unmistakably clear that the destruction of the city and the exile to Babylon were not because of Babylon's superior military might. This was a punishment from God, a well-deserved punishment from God. The temple in Jerusalem, which they saw as a sign of, that, that God was with them, uh, was destroyed by the Babylonians. People were taken away to Babylon feeling that God was so angry with them that he would never again accept them as his people. The kingdom was gone. The temple, the very house of God, was in ruins. The Israelites were enslaved, and they were in exile in a foreign land. Um, Israel was under the power of forces that they could never hope to defeat. They didn't see any possible means of escape or relief or whatever. And they knew that it was their own fault. Talk about hopelessness mixed with guilt. So in our passage this morning, Isaiah is writing to a wounded and broken people. And just when all hope seems lost, God sends them this message of comfort and hope and peace. Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah say this again. They say, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. So the prophet Isaiah is bringing the Israelites an incredible message that despite all of the sins that they had committed, despite all of their unfaithfulness, despite all of their guilt, despite all of the suffering that they had been through, God still loved them. And the key thing to see here is that God calls them my people. So even after everything they've done to reject God, God continues to identify them as his people. God doesn't overlook or ignore their sin, um, but he hasn't abandoned them either. God intends that they will have a future together, right? So God comforts them by announcing that their sins are forgiven. Um, they've been released from their debt. And not because of their own efforts, not because of their own righteousness, right? Even, you think about it, even 70 years in exile uh, wasn't enough to pay for all the evil that they had committed. Um, but instead of receiving what their sins deserved, they received a double portion of good things. And it is the same for us. Um, if we are in Christ... God intends that we will have a future together with him. If we are in Christ, God comforts us by announcing that our sins are forgiven. If we are in Christ, we are released from our debt, 
not because of our own good behavior, but instead of receiving what, the, what our sins deserve, like what we actually deserve, we receive a double portion of his blessings. Our God is the God of comfort. Despite our sin, and our sin is much, God still considers us his people. He still cares for us. He still loves us. God blesses us with things even though we don't deserve it. So that's good news, but um, this is good news too. Although it doesn't seem like it at first. It seems like more bad news. Um, but the fact is that the Israelites' suffering and exile in Babylon was actually a gift. It was a gift demonstrating God's love. As painful as it was, it was a gift of love. So you ask, how can pain and suffering be a gift of love? doesn't feel like a gift of love. So when our, when our son Aiden was born, uh, he developed blocked tear ducts. Um, the doctor gave us these like really long Q-tips and told us we were supposed to like vigorously massage his tear ducts a couple times a day uh, until it cleared up. Um, Jackie couldn't make herself do it um, because he would just scream so loud like, like we were torturing him. So I did it. <laughs> right? Uh, and every time I did it, twice a day, uh, I felt horrible. I mean, if you were to walk in the room while I was doing this, you know, I'm standing at the changing table and there's like this infant in front of me and you're looking at me from behind and I'm like this, you know, doing this and the child's just screaming at the top of his lungs like I'm killing him. Uh, you know, it wasn't fun. But eventually, of course, uh, it cleared up, all was well. So here, here's another example. And I, I warned uh, Aiden about I was going to give, him a couple, give a couple examples of him. Uh, when he was five, I brought Aiden with me to a conference at a church. I think Jackie was working at the time. During the conference, they had a kids program that was running simultaneously, so I, I checked him into that. And then when it was, when it was over, I, I went and checked him out of, of the kids' ministry. And then someone got my attention and started talking to me. And it was only like a minute but then when I turned around, he was gone. For 45 minutes, I couldn't find him. It's like five. Um, I was imagining all kinds of like horrible things that might be happening to our son. We, we were living in Kansas City at the time, uh, which uh, is known, like you can look this up, it is one of the top, I think it's like top uh, number four or something in the nation for sex trafficking. And so I was scared to death. So I'm like walking everywhere, like looking and looking and looking. Uh, I finally found him wandering around in the parking lot. So I only spanked Aiden a few times growing up, but that day was one of them. Uh, why? Because what he did was so dangerous, right? I had to show him how important it was that he not do that again. So I think in a similar way, um, God's heart was torn and broken 
by the lesson he had to teach his people as he watched them get defeated and watched them get carted off into exile. I'm pretty sure he would have loved to just rescue them, but he knew he couldn't. Right? First, they had to learn the terrible consequences of the way that they had been living. They had to learn to repent of their idolatry and of their sin. Right? And they had to learn how important it was to love God, to devote themselves to God, and to obey God's instructions. Right? Those instructions are not like meant to be a killjoy, they're for their own protection, for their own good, right? And that's what happened. Seventy years after the Babylonian exile, some of the Jews were able to leave Babylon and go back to their own land, but very rarely uh, after that did they worship false gods. They had learned their lesson. The exile had done what God intended it to do. It was a terrible time, but it was also a gift of God's grace. So the message of this passage to us today is similar. Um, wherever we are, whatever situation we're in, whatever we've done, um, God still cares. God loves us. And in the midst of our suffering, he comes to us with a word of hope. Comfort, comfort my people. Um, despite everything you and I have done wrong, in the midst of everything that we are going through, God still loves us. In Romans 8, Paul reminds us of this fact. Um, it's Romans 8, 35 and 38. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Okay, back to our passage, uh, verses 3 through 5. Our passage in Isaiah says this. Listen. It's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. So Isaiah says that God is coming to dwell with his people again. And nothing, nothing, nothing will stop God from coming back. Right? Valleys will be filled, mountains will be leveled, and highways will be paved. Nothing can stop the Lord God himself from returning, just as Isaiah said. How does this happen? It happened in Jesus. In Jesus, God's glory has been revealed, right? The glory of God incarnated into human flesh. John 1.14 says this, so the word became human, in the original Greek it's flesh, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory 
the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is what we see in Jesus. He is the Lord, God in flesh, returning to his temple. And he didn't come to throw our sins in our face and shame us. Right? He came to give us comfort. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus himself is God's message of comfort and hope and peace for his people. Why do I say for his people? So look at what the angels say at the birth of Jesus in Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So this promise was never peace for the whole world, right? It was to those on whom his favor rests. Now, if the entire world accepted Jesus as king, then there would be world peace. But like the bumper sticker says, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. Did they put that up there? There it is. You got to see it. If you just hear it, you don't know what I'm saying. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Truer words have scarcely ever been spoken, and this coming from a bumper sticker. Right? So we can be comforted and have hope and peace because, uh, because Christ went through the greatest discomfort for his people. He was bound so that we could be set free. Christ our King gave up his life on the cross in order to save our lives. His sacrificial death on our behalf marked the death of death itself. The power of sin is broken. Death is vanquished, right? Our bondage and slavery to sin is over and our debt to God has been paid. This is nothing, this is nothing, this is nothing that we deserve, right? We haven't done anything to deserve this. We still deserve God's punishment, both now and for the rest of eternity. Every one of us. Even good, moral, Christian people. Even your pastor. We all deserve it. But instead, we've been freed. We have been released. We have been forgiven. And all of our debts have been paid if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And on top of that, we get not just enough forgiveness, but we get double forgiveness. Like forgiveness overflowing like a flood. Right? But it's forgiveness that should overflow out of our own hearts even to those who have sinned against us, who've hurt us, who've offended us, who may have lied about us, maligned us, or perhaps even abused us. 
Remember this part of the Lord's Prayer, right? And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Verses uh, 6 through 8 in our passage from Isaiah say the following. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So the first thing we see here, first thing I want to point out here, is the power of God's word. Right? We're used to being skeptical about promises these days. Like, you hear the phrase, talk is cheap. Right? But really, it depends on who's doing the talking. Right? When God's talking, you can bank on it. Right? Because it is rock solid. Okay? The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. God speaks, and it is so. Right? The word itself is an event itself. Right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's how the word works. Right? And he reveals his word to us through the prophets and apostles in Holy Scripture preached and taught to us today. This is a word that you can absolutely count on. Absolutely. Right? God's word is sure and certain. Right? And this word speaks to us today and tells us of the comfort that God has for us. As you hear God's word being spoken and proclaimed to you, that is God coming near to you. That is one way God comforts us. Jesus is the one promised in Eden who would crush the head of the serpent. It's my favorite scene in the, in the Passion. It's like when Jesus like, just crushes his head. Anybody like that scene? Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Love it. So Jesus is Abraham's seed, right? Through whom all nations will be blessed. He is the Savior who was born of the house and the lineage of David. He is Isaiah's suffering servant, right? Who was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. That's one of the passages that, as I've discipled people over the years, I have them memorized. Usually I have them do it in the NIV. He was crushed for our, he was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our, oh shoot, now I lost it. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's a good one to memorize. He comforts us and he sets us free. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He has come. 
and he is coming again. Right? He's coming in glory to raise the dead, to bring new life, and to bring about a whole new creation. And he is making all things new. So wherever there is a preacher, wherever there is a church that is still faithful to Jesus Christ, this message of comfort and hope and peace is still being preached today. Right? The glory of the Lord is here, and it is to come. Of this, I am absolutely certain. It will happen because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I was talking to someone recently about spiritual warfare. Um, most spiritual warfare happens right here between our ears, right? Um, the lies and the accusations come from the enemy into our thought life, right? The enemy whispers, and we often believe him. The enemy says things like, like this, Look at you, some Christian you are. Christian? How can that be true? What about all these sins that you just keep committing? If the people in church really knew you, they'd want nothing to do with you. Or, he says, you're a hypocrite. Like, you talk the talk, but what about the walk? Or, he says, how could Jesus ever love you? You're just a bad person. There's no way Jesus could use you. You're not good enough. You're too broken. All you do is sin. Those are some of the accusations we might hear. I'm sure there, there are more. So when the devil accuses us like this, how should we respond? First, don't argue with him. Okay? Even though he's a liar, even though he is the father of lies, when he accuses us of sin, he's telling the truth. We do sin. We do fail the Lord. We are broken. We are all hypocrites to some degree. Right? None of us has perfect alignment of our words and our actions. Right? Don't argue with him when he says such things. Instead, agree with him. Agree with him, but then state the truths of God's word. The truth about what God says about you. I call it the yes, but God's word says. When the devil says you're a sinner, say yes, but God's word says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. When the devil says, you're worthless, say yes, but God's word says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. When the devil says, you're hopeless, say yes, but God's word says, 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. When the devil says you're a reject, say yes, but God's word says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When the devil says that you're dirty because of your sin, say yes, but God's word says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The word of God has incredible power. Right? And we need to replace the accusations and the lies of the enemy with the truth of what God's word has to say about us. Just Google the phrase, uh, what does God say that I, or I'm sorry, who does God say that I am? Who does God say that I am? Like Google that phrase. You'll get a, a whole listing of scriptures that will tell you the truth about who you are. Right? Use those to replace the lies and the accusations of the enemy with God's truth. You do that enough, and you'll have them memorized, right? You won't have to go even look at the list. That is the sword of the Spirit, right? In Ephesians, the Word of God. That is using the Word of God to replace the lies and the accusations of the enemy with the truth the truth that will set us free. Let's look at verse 9 in our scripture this morning. It says, O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. So another thing that can bring us comfort and hope and peace in a seemingly hopeless situation is the very presence of God, right? We see here in uh, Isaiah, he's making an announcement to the people in exile in Babylon. He says, your God is coming. So in order to understand like how radical that statement was, uh, we need to remember that they saw the temple in Jerusalem as a sign of God's presence among them, right? However, when the, the Babylonians overran the country, took the people into exile, they destroyed the temple, right? Furthermore, the people understood that the exile was God's judgment upon them, and they were sure that he had abandoned them. They weren't expecting him to live among them again. Uh, and perhaps they weren't even sure they wanted him to uh, because if he was going to be as angry as he was before, right? But now the prophet Isaiah says, your God is coming. That's good news. Verses 10 through 11 say this. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. 
He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother's sheep with their young. So God is coming to live among them again with this paradoxical combination of both strength and tenderness, power and mercy. I think we're more familiar and more comfortable with the image of Jesus as the conquering king, right? The royal monarch, the powerful king who's like riding a war horse in a proud procession with trumpets blaring and banners being unfurled. But the image we see here too is of a tender shepherd who's caring for the weakest caring for the most vulnerable members of his flock. He's tenderly carrying his lambs in his arms. He's holding them close to his heart, right? He's gently, gently, gently leading them, right? This is a very different image of a king. He's the good shepherd who provides for us. He cares for us. He seeks us out when we're lost. He feeds us with his word. He restores us when we're weak. He heals us when we're wounded. In this verse, we see the image of the shepherd lifting us out of the valley of despair and carrying us close to his heart. I think... Many of us go through most of our lives um, as, if, as if we don't need God, as if we don't need God's people. Or if we do, we don't talk about it. Right? Really, it's the culture we live in. Right? It's the air we breathe. Um, and we don't even realize it. Right? Self-reliance. Financial independence. Do it yourself. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Or, I'm finer than frog's fur. You ever hear that? Or we avoid the question altogether. We say, the Lord is good. True, that's true, that's true. How are you? How are you? If we have issues or problems or brokenness, we tend to want to just put those off to the side so we can get stuff done. Definitely don't want to talk about it. The Bible tells us that God's strength is made perfect in weakness, that when we are weak, He is strong. Now, shepherds carry older sheep on their shoulders, right? You've seen that? Put them over here and hold them like this, right? But when the shepherd needs to carry a weak sheep or a sick sheep or a young sheep, right, he carries it in his arms close to his chest. Then the shepherd uh, can, can comfort the sheep while the sheep rests his head on the shepherd's chest. Right? It's a place of security. It's a place of rest. 
on our weakest days, when we're struggling, when we're hurting, um, Jesus comes along, he picks us up, and he carries us in his arms close to his heart. He watches us with tender care. Um, Weak, poor, and broken people need a strong yet gentle Savior. Isaiah is calling us to rest, to rest in the bosom of our shepherd king. Is rest even a word in your vocabulary? Like, work should be rewarding, but not all-consuming, right? If you find it difficult to take a break, to stop working, or to enjoy your vacation without feeling the need to remain connected, um, where your mind actually gets a rest too, where you're not still thinking about your work, then you might need to learn to practice the discipline of rest. And it is a discipline. It doesn't come naturally. It's something we have to work at. And rest isn't just taking a break, right? Go back to that shepherd image again, right? To truly rest in Jesus' arms, we have to embrace our brokenness. We have to embrace our weaknesses. We have to embrace our limitations. Why? Why? Because he fills the valleys. He straightens the curves. He smooths out the rough places. What does he do when we're self-reliant? When we feel like we've got everything covered ourselves? He levels the mountains and the hills. Right? Whatever whatever pride we have, he levels it out. Right? Whatever self-assurance we have, whatever self-reliance we have, he breaks it. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. He longs to lift you up and carry you in his arms. Our shepherd king longs to lift you up and carry you in his arms so that you can rest your head on his heart. Will you let him? I want to close by praying uh, one of the most famous shepherd passages in Scripture, Psalm 23. Would you pray with me? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.